Good evening, and welcome to Ideas. I'm Paul Kennedy. Not long ago, the Law Commission of Canada asked sociologist Christopher Murphy to look into the policing of Canadian cities and to find out who's doing what. He was startled by what he discovered. It, frankly, was a surprise to me and will be a surprise to just about everybody that the public police actually have a relatively small role in the provision of general public order, safety, and security. That every day I go to work, I am to some extent affected by the campus security. I'm affected by private security in the banks when I visit. Um, When I walk down Spring Garden Road, I see private security out on the streets. I see signs for uh, community watch and community patrol. If I stroll through the casino, I'll, I'll bump into a 35-member unregistered, unregulated security uh, service, and that uh, I see the public police relatively rarely. The preponderance of private police, which Chris Murphy found in Halifax, is reflected across the country. In some places, private security companies have begun to take on functions once reserved for the public police. One that's been particularly aggressive in challenging the public monopoly is Toronto-based IntelliGuard. Tonight's program is about the public policy implications of the rapidly expanding private security industry, and we're going to spend the first half of it on the streets of Toronto, finding out what IntelliGuard does. Our show is part one of a special 10-hour series by David Cayley, called In Search of Security. This was the first social housing project we ever did. We're now arresting the children of people that I arrested when I was, uh, well, I wasn't your age, I was a little older. I started this company when I was 35. We're in an alley behind the public housing projects that line Toronto's Sherburne Street. It's a Thursday evening, and IntelliGuard's Ross McLeod is telling war stories to several of his younger officers. The first night, the very first night, There was only one fence in this place, and we had 16 people handcuffed to it the first first night. You know, we we, we were making so many arrests that we uh, carried uh, Loblaws bags full of uh, disposable handcuffs, you know, already threaded and ready to go. And eventually the sergeant came over from 51 Division. He says, what are you guys doing? And we said, we're cleaning this place out. He says, can we work together on this? He says, you want me to send a bus? He says, enough, enough tonight. He says, I'm not doing anything else, okay? Uh, And so we said, okay. He says, so, you know, tomorrow night? I said, well, how many do you want? He says, don't give me more than 10. Okay, (laughs) so we worked together that way. Because this place was totally out of control. They were just marching in column of route through the place. When Ross McLeod began, as he says, to clean out this alley 18 years ago, IntelliGuard consisted of him and his partner, Before he set up the business, he had been involved in a string of private art galleries and an art publishing house, which had failed during the recession of the early 1980s. Before that, he was a professor of sociology at the University of Regina. Today, he has 500 employees, a kennel of police dogs, a stable of police horses, and a reputation in which he seems to rejoice for having changed the face of the private security industry in Canada. The company's hallmark from the start has been an assertive, 
hands-on approach, which employs many of the same tools as the public police. For example, there's the fleet of police-type cruisers, which Ross McLeod shows me as we tour his Cherry Beach headquarters. So this, this is parts of the mobile fleet here. You've got, you know, marked, you've got unmarked. Um, we have GPS in all the cruisers, so we know where they are in the city. This is something that police forces would love to do, but the unions won't let them because it tells you where all the cars are. So you can look at the big screen in dispatch and you could see, uh, say hypothetically, you could see six of your cruisers were, were clustered around a Tim Horton somewhere, right? And uh, so of course we, we can get on the blower and we can say, hey, your 15 minutes of fame are up, uh, Messrs. Warhol, get out of the Tim Hortons. And um, also, of course, we can track the speed. We set the speed at say 110 and the little blue car markers that are moving around the, the city, if they go over that speed, then they turn red and they leave cookies behind them so you can see what routes they're taking and whether these are inappropriate routes, you know. So it's for officer safety, it's for efficiency and effectiveness in terms of, of, of rapid response in, in, in uh, critical situations and it's also a management tool. You know, you've got uh, 50, uh, 20 somethings out there in the middle of the night in a $30,000 car, you know, with maybe a, a $5,000 dog in a, in, a, in a cage in the back. And uh, the more supervision that you can have, the better for everybody concerned. Just across the parking lot are the kennels, where IntelliGuard's 26 dogs are housed. These include German Shepherds, Rottweilers, a Cocker Spaniel who specializes in bomb detection, and even a prize bloodhound. The dogs are fully trained. In fact, they're occasionally lent to public police forces, and they're invaluable, Ross McLeod says, in the kind of policing IntelliGuard does. It's very, very common if we're in a, a very uh, volatile housing project, if our officers make an apprehension of, uh, say, a narcotics dealer, then they're holding one prisoner, that prisoner starts to shout to the, you know, the, the flotsam and jetsam, come and help me, get me out of here. Then of course you're suddenly, the officer is facing 10, 20, 50, the crowd grows, every minute it grows. So they radio for canine support. We have, you know, 30 uh, cruisers on the road. So usually in, in a minute or two, a cruiser will arrive, deploy a canine and hold the crowd back until the police get there. Or you can take the prisoner to cover inside the building, out of the sight of the crowd. So getting swarmed is an everyday occurrence uh, for our people. The dogs are the responsibility of Dominic Mamoli, a certified trainer who glows when he talks of the virtues of dogs in policing. He offers me a demonstration. Ulysses, would you mind uh, being a bad guy for five minutes? Ulysses is an IntelliGuard officer who has played this part before. He wraps a protective shield around his forearm and Dominic sets the dog on him. Suspect, drop the bar, stand still. Back away from the dog. Back away from the dog. And then he calls him off. Call him off. Stay. Suspect, turn around. As promised, the dog is absolutely obedient and stops the instant he is told. At Dominic's invitation, I tentatively pet the now docile Thunder. Thunder, nice. Thunder also makes nice with Ulysses, whom he was just furiously attacking. I'm impressed. Either Yankee 43 or Yankee 11. 
A few moments later, Ross McLeod and I are joined by Kirk Briscoe, one of his senior managers, and the three of us set off in a cruiser to visit various IntelliGuard sites. As we drive, Kirk Briscoe explains their emergency radio codes. If it's very serious and you're going to get into a fight or the situation is totally out of control, you would just advise your dispatcher that it was a 1078 call. And a 1078 call is that you need some help and you need it real fast. You also have an emergency button on your radio so that if, for instance, and this has happened, one of our female officers uh, a couple of years ago was jumped from behind and the attacker took her, um, her uh, shoulder mic and she was trying to call a 1078 into it. He knocked it out of her hand, wrapped it around her neck and started to uh, choke her with it. Uh, before she lost consciousness, she reached down and pressed the emergency button on her radio and that that overrides all other radio traffic and sends a, an automatic 1078 signal to dispatch. Her number, her radio number comes up on the screen so they know who's calling and of course because of our procedures they know what her last reported position was. So in that case her first backup unit got there in about 90 seconds and managed to uh, knock the fellow off her and to take the cord off her neck and so she recovered. She was pretty hoarse for a couple of days, but she recovered and we, uh, and subsequently un units arrived, arrested the uh, attacker, and that fellow did some hard time for, for aggravated assault. We arrive at our first stop, an apartment building regularly patrolled by IntelliGuard. Along with the officer whose beat this is, we check the underground garage where several cars have been broken into, and then the stairwells. We work in the security to get to know stairwells really well. <laughs> it's, it's almost like um, our, our experienced officers are like, um, you know the old westerns that I grew up on? I think you and I are a similar vintage. You would have grown up on them as well. Were the Indian trackers? They, they go and they poke something on the ground. They'd say, hmm, you know, men, many men pass here, you know? And our experienced officers can tell the difference between animal feces, human feces, and within the, the category human feces, they can tell the difference between people that are taking um, different types of drugs just by the, the pattern of the droppings. And it's amazing what you learn over time. It's like reading the woods, you know, but, it, but we're urban trackers. <laughs> so we're tracking people through buildings and parking lots and, and parkettes. The image of the urban tracker analyzing the spoor of drug users evokes the gritty romance that Ross McLeod wants to restore to policing. The public police, he says, have lost their connections to local communities and can no longer give citizens the policing they want. IntelliGuard, he tells me as we resume our tour, is showing the way. What people were yearning for was a type of community policing that actually, when there was disorder and there, and there was uh, a crime, that uh, somebody would intervene and remediate and restore. And what they wanted was police, but the police would not, could not do it. They would not deliver community policing. They, they delivered the rhetoric, but they would not deliver the reality. So that's what we started doing. When I came in 21 years ago, private sector people did not make arrests. You could not buy handcuffs in Canada. 
we had to buy them in the States. And we had to start off very carefully with lots of legal advice, but we started intervening, we started making arrests, and uh, it just changed over a period of 10, 12, 15 years. It just changed the whole rhythm of the private sector. This new service was now available, the business expanded, and um, at first the police were shocked, and they even started, uh, in a few cases, arresting our people under the mistaken notion that we weren't allowed to arrest people. They just didn't know the, that sector of the law very well because it, it had never been put to the test. When they realized, of course, very quickly that we were within our, our rights, but then uh, after a while, some of them became apprehensive that you know maybe we were out to get their jobs, not realizing that, that they couldn't or wouldn't do the work. Ross McLeod calls IntelliGuard the para-police, a name he has actually registered, and also the title of his recently published book on the subject. In his view, the para-police should be to the public police as paramedics are to doctors or paralegals to lawyers. They will do the things that would be too expensive if you had to pay a police officer to do them or that the police say they're too busy to do in any case. And in this kind of community policing, Ross McLeod says, the para-police have a great advantage because they're unarmed. The gun, the gun is huge. The gun is huge. Because when you've got a gun, it distances you again from the public. Because, you know, normal members of the public don't handle guns. They don't encounter guns very often. And and uh, guns make them, uh, in my experience, uh, fairly nervous. And when you, I, I've done a lot of work armed, and uh, when, you, um, when you're, you have a gun, every call you go to is an armed call. And uh, you're quite aware, at least I was, that no matter how tough you are, there's always somebody out there who's tougher or more hopped up on pain-numbing drugs or just got out of prison after 11 years of working out for two hours a day, and they will be capable of overwhelming you and taking away the gun. And, of course, the stats show that, uh, that a huge number of officers that are shot are shot with their own gun. So I think that community policing um, is going, most of it's going to be done by people like us without guns, and I think that's a good thing. Our next stop is the Moss Park Public Housing Complex. The company's authority here, as elsewhere, has two sources. The right of the property owner, and IntelliGuard as the owner's delegate, to determine who can do what on that property, and the ancient right of any citizen to arrest a person whom he observes committing an indictable offense. But the law also requires the person making such an arrest to immediately call the police, who then have to go through the whole matter again. So the public would be better served, Ross McLeod tells me as we walk the halls, if IntelliGuard officers had the status of police deputies, special constable status it's called in law, because then they would be able to write tickets and exact promises to appear in court themselves. With the number of arrests that our company makes, I've calculated that if we had special constable status, it would free up the police and, and thereby save the taxpayer about $25 million. and that's just our company. Because, I mean, in this division here, 51 division, 
Last year they, they made about 5,000 arrests and about 42, 44% of those arrests were ours, turned over to them, our prisoners turned over to them. Hello. In the stairwell, we come across someone who has passed out. Neil Moran and Robert Buffoni, the two IntelliGuard officers who patrol here, try to rouse him. Come on, let's try getting up. Yeah, hey, right up. Need help getting up? Oh, okay, man. All right. Do you have any identification on you? Nothing. What's on your hat? What's that? Georgie Porgy. Yeah. What's your name? Have a seat for a second. Do you live here? You do? Once Buffoni and Moran have ascertained that Georgie Porgy lives in the building, they escort him back to his unit. Danny, it's me, it's Georgie Porgy. Oh, with security and everything. Oh, it's cool. Hi, can we come in? We enter the apartment and find two of his friends there. My presence with a microphone adds to the hubbub. Hey, do you got this on? Yeah, it's on. It's recording. Hi, my name is Jeremy. And uh, these uh, security guys are really out of proportion because this guy lives here. And we're his guest. Despite this assurance, the IntelliGuard officers continue to press for lease papers or some other proof that this is Georgie Porgy's home. The request is fairly straightforward, but Georgie is in no condition to comply. One last time. With 251. George, so don't you have something like, you know, in those papers that, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. George. I do not. The matter is finally settled with a call to IntelliGuard dispatch, who consult the tenant list of the building. Our man checks out, and we leave. Hey, no, Mom, I, shut I, up on no, no, no. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, sir. No, I appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome to our world. We cross a courtyard where children are playing, then come to an apartment unit that's been boarded up. Neil Moran tells me the story. She was a tenant who moved in two years ago, you'd say? About two years ago. Good girl. She gets mixed up in the wrong crowd. She gets, she meets this guy who supposedly wants to be her boyfriend, but turns out to be a pimp. Gets her hooked on drugs, crack cocaine, and uh, she just took a downward spiral, right? And her unit then became a crack house, right? For people to come, do their tricks, do their drugs. And recently she's just been evicted and we check on it periodically because there were times the doors were kicked in, the windows were smashed. Right now they boarded up the window and uh, the unit's secure, but it, that can change. Neil Moran tells me he's considering a career in policing or corrections. Many of his fellow officers have the same idea. Police wannabe is a taunt often directed at IntelliGuard's people. And former employees of the company are already working for police forces in both the United States and Canada. 
Ross McLeod isn't always happy to lose his best people to better paying police jobs, but he still says that his graduates are just what the police need. There's a very heavy institutional mentality in the police. It's, a, it's what sociologists call a total institution, and there's not many of those left, but the police is one of them. And various uh, consultants and, and some sort of police intellectuals started telling uh, the police, look, you've got to get people with a broader life experience, more diversity, you know, not just uh, kids that are brought in as cadets and, and form their whole mentality in the police world. So they started looking for people with broader experience. Well, as a, a lot of these young officers will tell you, this is the place where you can get the most life experience that's relevant to policing. You're out here, you do not have a gun, you do not have a uniform that says police, so you have to use your brain and you have to use your mouth and you have to use all your, your negotiating skills. Whereas you walk in to a situation with a big gun on your hip um, and a uniform that says police, uh, you don't have to use all those skills if you don't want to. And unfortunately, that's what's led to the situation that the public police talk the talk of community policing, but they don't walk the walk because they don't have to. But out here, we have to or we'd be eaten alive. Intelligard, as Ross McLeod sees it, is not only training police officers, it's also creating pressure for a reform of public policing. It's often said that public police are accountable through civilian boards and review agencies, while private police are not. McLeod turns the proposition around. To him, it's the private companies that are accountable because they have to satisfy their clients and insurers. We're actually forcing the police to adopt modern management techniques and adopt things like transparency because we are transparent. We can't sweep things under the carpet. We can't run and we can't hide. We're subject to much more scrutiny than the public police are. We don't have the protections that they have. We are accountable. We are client-driven. These are all the things that we expect in modern corporations that we deal with. Successful modern corporations are like this. And the public gets it from private security, and they're starting to demand it from the police. And they're saying, why won't you answer us? Why won't you deliver this type of policing? Why aren't you here at night, on foot, in the community when the crime's being done. That's when we want you here. We don't want you in a car whooshing by during the day. So they hire us to pound the beat and give them the policing they want. Hey, Fred, where are you? Hey, you know what? Yeah. So how's it going here? It's been quiet. Yeah. Our last stop of the evening is at the Atkinson Co-op, a former public housing project now making the transition to self-management, where Intelligard has the policing contract. In the office, a conversation starts about the help Intelligard now provides to the public police. Kirk Briscoe relates a recent meeting with two detectives from a task force set up by Toronto Police Chief Julian Fantino to deal with the problem of guns and gangs. That unit was three days old when we met with them on Monday out at Chalk Farm, because Chalk Farm has been targeted as a hot spot. And they sat there, these two detectives, we overloaded them with information, okay, so that they had to leave and schedule another meeting for Friday. But they told us 
Gave them all the files in the whole nine yards. And I said, listen, I said, the only reason we're here is because it comes right from Fantino's office. He's fed up with the guns, the graffiti, the drugs, the gangs, the whole nine yards. And they were in when Fantino and the deputy chiefs and stuff all got together and they briefed all these detectives. There's 75 of them, three squads of 25. And all Fantino said is go out on the streets, go to the people who know what's going on. There were two people who knew what was going on. Go see IntelliGuard and go see Toronto Housing. That was it. After an uneventful tour of the Atkinson Co-op, we head back to IntelliGuard headquarters, where our tour ends. We sit in the car outside the main building, and Ross McLeod tells me finally why he thinks a blended system of public and private policing is both inevitable and desirable. We have to talk about the public good and we have to talk about finite resources and there is a better way to divide the law enforcement pie and to share the law enforcement budget. And a lot of the work that has to be done can be done much more efficiently and effectively by the parapolice and much, much, much cheaper. And uh, the sooner uh, cooler heads prevail and say, okay, let's do a division of labor here. We'll contract uh, the following functions out to the private sector and hold them to standards or benchmarks that are legislated by government. They'll be supervised and, and invigilated by public police uh, agencies and uh, police service boards. Be accountable. Um, we're already more accountable than the police in terms of uh, market forces and being picked over by insurance adjusters, etc. And it's, insurance is compulsory in our industry. And if and if we lose it, we're out we're out of business. So they they have the power to come in and, and investigate everything. So it's it's nothing extra to us to take on the the additional pieces of accountability that the police have. We're eager to do that. So there's nothing left in the road to um, uh, working together of public and private except some old-fashioned turf protection and also the public not realizing that this blended form of policing would be ever so much better for them. So I think as soon as the public realizes this, they will sweep away the old dinosaurs that are trying to hold on to their privileged positions. There should be no more total institutions in modern societies. The last institution to be reformed is the police, and it looks like we're going to be the reforming agent. On Ideas Tonight on CBC Radio 1, you're listening to part one of a ten-part series called In Search of Security. Written and presented by David Cayley. Ross McLeod is a persuasive character, and his vision of para-policing seems very much in tune with the times. But not everyone is impressed. One political group that has expressed very strong opposition is the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty. OCAP, as it's known, has been a militant advocate for the interests of the poor on issues like welfare and homelessness, and many of its people live in areas where IntelliGuard polices. Gaetan Heroux is a veteran OCAP organizer who works for an agency called Street Health. Its offices are on Dundas Street, just around the corner from Moss Park, near the entrance to the alley 
where Ross McLeod made his first mass arrests. Slowly we began to hear stories of people interacting with uh, private security. And, and the one that comes to mind was the one a few years ago where um, a man, uh, Roger Carr, who I'd known for a while, I got a call from his wife one night saying that uh, Roger was being beaten up by IntelliGuard in the lobby. I got in a taxi, I came in. Uh, as I came in, I could see uh, his shirt had been pulled off. He was handcuffed to his back. He was bleeding from his head. He had a huge bump on his head. The, there was a dog there and the two IntelliGuard. Uh, and, and it was quite a stark image, uh, given that I, you know, what I knew of Roger, who was a very, very proud person. IntelliGuard and OCAP disagree on the fact of Roger Carr's case. He filed charges against IntelliGuard. IntelliGuard filed countercharges. Carr's charges were dismissed. IntelliGuard dropped theirs. But the incident galvanized OCAP. They began to organize against IntelliGuard. They charged IntelliGuard with brutality and with racism. Roger Carr was Jamaican. Meetings and demonstrations were held. Posters appeared characterizing IntelliGuard's people as stormtroopers and IntelliGoons, as one such poster put it. The issue, says Gaetan Eru, was not security as such, but a certain style of security, which OCAP believed humiliated the poor and violated the rights of tenants. Everyone recognizes that, not just at Dundas and Sherburne, in many, many areas, that, that security is an issue, a real issue for people, and including for, for poor people. But at the same time, you know, poor people have a right to a certain standard and a certain kind of policing. And what we're seeing with this kind of kick-ass attitude that IntelliGuard brings to it is uh, we're seeing a lot, a lot of uh, residual effects of that. Uh, for instance, you know, tenants who, who are assaulted by the security guards, rules that are just totally ignored in terms of uh, people's, you know, the, you need a warrant to enter an apartment. <laughs> Right? In most cases, uh, we were hearing many stories of, of IntelliGuard you know, with keys going in or forcibly going inside or knocking on the door and then once pushing themselves in. I mean, those are the kinds of stories we were hearing. And we were also hearing that people who ran IntelliGuard were bragging about the fact that they would do things that sometimes would go outside the norm. Uh, but they said, well, that we did that because that would be, people would see us as we're effective. I mean, that's their, that's their argument. Gaetan Eru says that he doesn't reject policing as such. He objects only to policing as a substitute for social policy. He also thinks that the aggressiveness with which his community is policed is tolerated only because its victims are poor. And he considers IntelliGuard's trademark dogs to be a sign of this incivility. Policing people with, with dogs is really, really troublesome. And I don't know if that kind of policing in any other community would be tolerated. Uh, my feeling is that the, uh, the IntelliGuard approach to this, uh, very, very few other <laughs> communities would, would, would tolerate that kind of policing. The reason that they're able to do the kinds of things they do in, in this community is because this is a very poor community. We have, you have to understand, we have over 2,000 hostile beds in this area. It's the largest concentration of, of probably in Canada of homeless people. We have, uh, you know, social housing all around us. And this is where, you know, IntelliGuard uh, has, has kind of put its stamp. But the truth is, you know, IntelliGuard can't resolve these issues. It's impossible for, for private policing to resolve these issues. Because ultimately, these are social issues. 
51 Division hasn't been able to do it. What they can do is they can make maybe life very intolerable for some people who shouldn't be in the area. But in the crossfire, as we've seen with Roger and, and others and some of the tenants who live there, there are some very, very serious incidents that, that have occurred. And I would fight tooth and nail and with everything I have to make sure that uh, IntelliGuard wouldn't be in this building. If I lived in a complex, that's not the answer. Gaetan Ehru's view of IntelliGuard, it hardly needs saying, is entirely opposite to Ross McLeod's. Where one sees a new era of community policing, the other sees an occupying army. The IntelliGuard people I met on my brief tour seemed obliging, intelligent, and free of the swagger one often associates with police. But how people behave in front of a journalist with an open microphone on a specially arranged tour hardly counts as evidence in this debate. What is certain is that even IntelliGuard's admitted practices raise a lot of questions. Many of these questions are addressed in a new book by Carleton University criminologist George Regakos. It's called The New Parapolice, and it reports the results of several months' close, on-the-spot observation of IntelliGuard at work. One of the things that distinguishes them is the, their level of aggressive intervention. Stopping people that they're not familiar with, you know, who are you, where are you going, what's your business here, provide me with identification, how do I know you live in this building, if you don't live in this building, I'm removing you and I'm issuing you a banning notice. Patrolling uh, areas in those buildings where they, where they think there might be people loitering, patrolling areas in those buildings where they think there might be people setting up temporary residences, you know, sleeping, uh, for example, in abandoned cars in the parking lot, uh, underground areas, stairwells, et cetera, taking careful notes as to, you know, who these people are, um, what they're wearing, uh, any sort of personal identification, any possessions. Uh, they have a really, a fairly remarkable sized database on unofficial residences in, in Toronto because of the activities that they're engaged in. They get amassed quite a bit of information on Toronto's uh, homeless population. And uh, they use that as part of their marketing as well. I mean, the type of information that they convey to clients in terms of the people that they've arrested and the patrols that they've made and so on. I mean, they don't collect this data for the sake of collecting data. They collect this data because it makes them more marketable, makes them more professional, makes them more thorough. This thorough policing can be dangerous work, as you heard earlier. George Ragakos has calculated from his own research that an IntelliGuard officer is five times more likely to be attacked on the job than a member of Toronto's public police force. In the book, I document an, uh, a whole bunch of cases where the IntelliGuard officers have put their lives in danger. Unarmed, they try to make arrests against notorious drug dealers. They're swarmed, they're beaten. Guys have spent weeks in the hospital, but they also themselves have been faced um, criminal trials for abusing um, tenants that lived in the building. So it's almost a, um, a swarm or be swarmed mentality that develops because you really do have a sort of running turf wars with uh, regional gangs. And Delegard's business is all about stifling someone else's business. And when that happens, there's a lot of violence. I mean, I, I could tell you that I was <laughs> in engaging these patrols in certain hallways and certain buildings across Toronto. I was afraid. The types of looks and the types of stares and, and uh, the way that we were greeted by 
people in, in those buildings. I was like a walking target, particularly because I wasn't wearing a uniform, so they thought I was a supervisor. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, yeah, it was troubling. So it's a very dangerous uh, occupation. And quite, quite frankly, I mean, I, I couldn't understand why someone would want to do this. But I understood after a while that, you know, there's a sort of camaraderie, there's a, there's a sense of mutual reinforcement, and, and the subculture works in odd ways at, at, at companies like that. Intelligard officers are more at risk than public police because they are much more exposed. They have less prestige, and they are part of the places they police. Very unlikely that a police constable on patrol would spend a 20, on a 24-hour basis sitting around in a, re, in a residential area hoping to come into contact with or frustrate the trade, whether that be drug dealing or whatnot, of a particular resident and make that their primary issue or primary goal. It's too insignificant. It's not, it's not as big a deal. So, of course, the, the likelihood of them um, coming into contact with those individuals who are upset with them is far more likely for an IntelliGuard officer. They're in their face all of the time. They're relentless. When the police arrive, they come in force and they're there to make an arrest. In the thoroughness and detail of their work, George Rogakos thinks that IntelliGuard and companies like it are returning to a model of policing that was prevalent in the early 19th century. The control of potentially unruly populations was then called police science. Its purpose was to observe and control these populations, making them manageable by making them known. Intelligard, in George Rogakos's eyes, has similarly far-reaching ambitions. They're really about trying to set up a new civil order on these chunks of private property. Uh, and they, they, they do, they run, it runs the gamut from reporting on litter in hallways to checking on fire extinguishers to uh, uh, reading gas valve temperatures to uh, talking to residents about securing their own uh, community to the more aggressive tactics as making arrests for engaging in all, in all forms of minor incivilities and nuisances to the long-term investigations on, on drug use and dealing. I mean, it's a sort of one-stop management system for hire on private settings. According to George Regakos, IntelliGuard regulates the people and places it polices with an intensity that goes beyond what we would expect or tolerate from the public police. And this kind of private regulation, in his view, is becoming more and more common. Commercial malls, for example, may post standards of dress and deportment and then evict those who don't conform. The limits to such private authority in semi-public places like malls is one of the issues which George Regakos raises in a discussion paper he drafted for the Law Commission of Canada. Called In Search of Security, the paper is intended to alert Canadians and their lawmakers to a legal and regulatory vacuum. At the moment, private security companies are licensed by understaffed provincial agencies with little or no ability to effectively supervise their operations and there are no public complaints procedures. Several provinces have amended their laws to include minimum training standards, but none has put forward an overall vision of the proper relationship between public and private police, or of how private security is to be held to public account. The Law Commission is now following up its discussion paper 
with a report to Parliament. It will recommend, among other things, better integration of public and private policing. A central argument for the integration of public and private policing rests on the idea that public police can no longer deliver all of the policing which contemporary societies require. This is the view of Stephen Schneider, a criminologist at St. Mary's University in Halifax, who has worked both for the police and for a private forensic accounting firm. He says that the police simply can't cope anymore and that what they can't cope with above all is the form of crime that actually hurts people the most, economic crime. I mean, just look at Enron. I mean, look how many thousands of people were just absolutely devastated from Enron. How many senior citizens lost their pension? How many people lost all the value in their shares? And this is a great irony, is that the, the crimes that have the most negative impact on society are the ones we treat with the most leniency. And most police forces will tell you that we do not prioritize economic crime. Just the other day, the Edmonton Police Force actually came out and said, you know, we will not respond to most reports of economic crime. If you've been defrauded of money, if you're a victim of a telemarketing scam, don't bother coming to us because we can't respond to it. And the RCMP has said that in BC. The Toronto Police have said that. And the fact is, if you, you can call the police now and you can say to them, well, I've just got an email from a Nigerian advanced fee fraud scam. Could you look into that? And they'll basically laugh at you. They say, well, you know what? We've received a million of those last week. And there wouldn't be exaggerating. The police, government, the state cannot keep up and they do not have the, the mandate or the resources to be the exclusive body of crime control. And that's absolutely personified by economic crime. Because the police can't cope with economic crime, it is mainly dealt with by private investigators, or forensic accountants, as they're known. And a lot of corporations, says Stephen Schneider, like it that way. But corporations would prefer that the private sector deal with it for, the one, for a number of reasons, but one of those reasons is that they have more control over the investigation. If you're a corporation and you hire a private police force to do your investigation, you can completely control that investigation. And not only the investigation, but the outcome. With a public investigation, once you turn over to police, you completely lost control of that investigation. You have no control over the outcome. And the other thing is that most corporations don't want the negative publicity. Uh, they don't want people to know that they've been victimized. They don't want people to know, they certainly don't want their shareholders to know that their employees have been ripping them off. And the corporations don't necessarily want people put in jail. They just want to get as much of their money back as possible. And that's the role of the private investigator. The private investigator's role is to get the money back. The job of the police is to put the guy in jail. They're, a low priority for police is getting the corporations their money back. So there's a number of reasons, uh, compelling reasons, why you would not want to turn to police. Private investigation may suit corporations that just want their money back and no bad publicity, but it can hardly be said to serve justice or the public interest. And the public interest also suffers, according to Stephen Schneider, because private firms tend to skim off the cream of the public police. The public sector is actually subsidizing the private sector because we're training all these police officers uh, and then they go to the private sector. 
it's just, I mean, it's a temptation that's too tough to resist. You do your 20 years, you get trained, you've developed an, a significant amount of expertise, you've gotten your pension. So why would you stay in the RCMP when you can go to the private sector, make a bigger salary, plus collect your pension at the same time? So it's a very, uh, you know, it's very enticing. The private forensic accounting industry siphons off public resources, but at the moment has no obligation to act in the public interest. The only solution, Stephen Schneider says, is to integrate this sector within a single publicly accountable system. The police do not have the resources anymore in society to effectively and comprehensively address all our crime problems. So I argue that we're at the point where basically the public police should start deputizing uh, the private sector policing. I think there should now be a formal division of labor. Stephen Schneider's proposal is still a long way from anyone's legislative agenda, but it is already stirring up debate amongst the police. When the Law Commission assembled a large international conference on security last year, the most talked about event was the brouhaha that broke out over this issue between police executives and police union representatives. Speaking in favor of integration was career police officer Jacques Dugenot, who was the chief of police in Montreal between 1994 and 1998. Montreal, he says, is one of the few Canadian cities, Edmonton is also notable, where the police have already established the beginnings of a formal division of labor with private providers. You know, when we merged all the police services in Montreal in 1972, smaller cities felt that they, uh, you know, uh, lost certain kind of service, you know, tailored sort of service that they had before, and the small cities decided to have their own private security that were mainly there to patrol, to have a presence, because the cost of public service, uh, police service, were uh, you know, get, getting too high. Uh, when we merged all the police services in 1972, there were 5,500 police officers. Uh, when I left, uh, we only had the 4,200. So we had lost 1,300. Uh, One-fifth of the whole force uh, were, were gone. So they had to rely on private security that was cheaper, and they were doing a very specific type of work, which uh, uh, did not need a full training uh, like police officers receive. Did you coordinate with them? Yes, yes, we did. We worked uh, closely. They were, they were our eyes. When they saw something, they would call 911, and we would uh, go there and help them in uh, trying to solve the uh, situation. The island of Montreal's local patrols give citizens what they want at a cost they can afford. And cost, Jacques Dugenot says, is the main issue driving the integration of private security and public police. During the period between World War II and today, policing has gone from a fairly labor-intensive, blue-collar occupation to a high-tech, high-cost drain on municipal budgets. And this is why Jacques Dugenot thinks that police unions are dreaming when they argue that they should have the jobs that are now going to $10 to $15 an hour security guards. If you talk with uh, union uh, representatives, they, they feel that they're losing jobs. 
but I don't think that is facing reality. I mean, uh, a police officer today, full-trained police officer, is, is very expensive. Police officers cannot be in shopping malls anymore. Uh, they cannot be in parking lots anymore. Uh, they don't have time because we've reduced the number of police officers. They don't have time to issue tickets the way we did. You know, uh, parking violations, uh, bylaw uh, infractions cannot be taken care of by public uh, police officers. It's too expensive. So we have to find other ways. So no, I, I don't see that as a threat. Jacques Dugenot's view of private security as a supplement rather than a threat to public police is not shared by Canada's police unions. Their central body is the Ottawa-based Canadian Police Association. Ontario Provincial Police Officer Dale Kinnear speaks for the association. We've looked at it right from day one, people who want to go down that road, is that it's nothing more than a search for cheap labour. Because of the demands for higher skills and higher training and more accountability and everything that have been placed on the police, and rightfully so, over the last 20 years, it's driven up the cost of policing. The cause and effect is, is that it's getting now more expensive to put a police officer on the street. So I think some of the people now, some of the bean counters, some of the criminologists who may have been responsible for driving the price of it up 10 or 15 years ago, are now coming out with this as a solution, as a form of cheap labour. According to Dale Kinnear, policing is expensive because it's in high demand. During the last 30 years, he says, the police have been made more accountable to civilian overseers, the courts have held them to more exacting standards, and legislatures have passed new laws for them to enforce. One of the results has been better educated, better trained, and better paid police officers. So is it fair, he asks, to now tell them they're too expensive and that some of their work will have to be farmed out to private security? We've gone through, since the early 70s, probably beginning with the the Bail Reform Act and on through the Charter and on through complaint systems and everything, in terms of accountability measures and people looking at the public police and making... uh, accountability demands of it and what have you. We've, we've been faced with that since the early 70s, I guess. And then we wonder, you know, what happened that all of a sudden now some of these same groups and, and deep thinkers who have brought some of that upon us could consider employing private security guards to carry out some of those functions where accountability and oversight and everything else was the issue for us, but yet now in, in, in a bid to bring in this cheap labor They're not as concerned about the accountability mechanisms and and, and what have you. They're not putting that in place as well. And I think what's going to happen, and I don't know why they can't understand this, we're a little bit on the merry-go-around here. What's going to happen with an increase in authority and responsibility without all the other things they need to do in terms of certification and training and all this kind of thing, I think you will see the same result in terms of people aren't going to be very satisfied with how they're being treated or what's going on. So the same thing is going to be brought into place there. So are you getting anything any different, really, than what you already have? You may buy a little time, buy a little relief for a few years, but we are just amazed at the fact that, you know, where we went through this wave of of authority and oversight, and I'm not saying that was, was the wrong thing to do, but by the same token, how can something now that is, you know, far less qualified, far less accountable than 
than what we ever were 30 years ago be considered for to get into some of these areas of, of responsibility where they're going to be bumping up against people's charter rights and freedoms and, and it, you know, the, the same as what the police do. So I think they need to take a good, long, hard look at some of these things and just realize that the answer may be properly funding what you already have as opposed to trying to, uh, trying to find a, a, an unsuitable solution. According to Dale Kinnear, bringing private security up to the standard of the public police would, in effect, turn them into the public police, and we'd be no further ahead. But his solution runs into the objections raised earlier by Ross McLeod, Steve Schneider, and Jacques Dugeneau. The public police can't cope with all the demands on them. And with policing already eating up the lion's share of overstretched municipal budgets, there's no money to pay for more police. It's an issue that legislatures will soon have to face. Behind it lie deeper questions. How satisfactory and how accountable are the public police? How distinct is the difference between public and private? Do we need all this security? I'll take up these questions and many others as this series goes on. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to part one of In Search of Security, produced and presented by David Cayley. Our 10-hour series will continue tomorrow night with a look at the privatization of security worldwide. The series was inspired by an international conference organized by the Law Commission of Canada. Our thanks to the Commission and to its Director of Research, Dennis Cooley. Dave Field was the technical director, Richard Handler, the editorial consultant, and Liz Nage, the associate producer. A transcript of the series is available for $25. Tapes or CDs of the 10 programs cost $75. Write to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Or email us at ideas at cbc.ca. You can call area code 416-205-7367 and order by credit card. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. The news follows, then the arts today, and between the covers. <laughs> <laughs>